Welcome to Programming Love Podcast, Episode 1. I'm your host, Oli. This is a high-fidelity podcast where we meet passionate people and discuss programming. On this podcast, you'll hear stories from individuals from around the world on their journey and the joys and pains they experience along the way so we can all learn and move forward together. This week, I'm coming to you from Seattle. And as a co-host, please welcome product manager at JetBrains and Kotlin Project, Anton Arhipov. Hello, everybody. How you've been? I'm excited to be here. So as I understand, before joining me here, you were doing a lot of podcasting. Is that true? Yes, that's somewhat true. I've been a co-host of one technology-related podcast for the Russian-speaking audience. And I've joined multiple podcasts over the years as a guest. And now you're doing your sports podcast. Uh, yes, that's an experiment. <laughs> that's a nice experiment and it's exciting. We'll see if we can extend and use our experiences tonight. So let's start our premiere episode. It's been a few years since the idea of cloud technologies was introduced. Cloud computing in general and infrastructure as a service in particular have been widely accepted and adopted paradigms with the offerings of virtual machines on demand. In 2020, 67% of enterprise IT infrastructure and software is cloud-based, yet a lot of organizations still struggle to adopt the cloud and especially serverless technology. In this episode, we would love to discuss a few blog posts about it and dive into Google Cloud Technologies with our friend, James Ward, who is a developer advocate at Google. Hello. Hey, thanks for having me. I can't believe I get to be on the first episode. That's <laughs> such an honor. Thank you. You are special. <laughs> oh, yay. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here and talk about serverless and cloud and all that fun stuff. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, James? Sure. Yeah. So I work at Google Cloud and I help developers learn about Google Cloud and how to deploy their applications and how to write YAML and all that sorts of fun stuff like that. Before that, I was at Salesforce slash Heroku and uh, so I've been doing the cloud stuff for a while. Did a little stint at TypeSafe and that's the company behind Scala. What are they called now? Lightbend. <laughs> they were called TypeSafe back then. I guess that TypeSafe name didn't seem accurate with Akka not being TypeSafe or something. I don't know. No, it. they released TypeSafe version of Akka. So they can change <laughs> oh, that's the right. name back. Now they could change back. Yeah. 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 So that was super fun doing Scala stuff there. Yeah. And then before that, I was at Heroku. I left Heroku and came back. A fun little fact, I think I started the first Java hosting. That's what we call it. Before cloud stuff, we called it hosting. <laughs> you all probably know that. But I think I started the first Java hosting service that there was. It was called Want Java. I don't know. I was like 1998 or something like that. Before that. it was cool. Yeah. Before we called it cloud. It was just, it was like one Solaris server and that was it. So. That was fun. So anyways, I've been doing Java, Java stuff in the cloud for a long time. And now that's what I do at Google Cloud. I've been doing a lot of Kotlin lately, which has been pretty fun. I love Scala. That's my favorite. And I do still get to write a lot of Scala, but I've been doing a lot of Kotlin. And Kotlin, I like Kotlin. There's a lot of good things in there. 
we could talk about Kotlin stuff. Yeah, we should talk about Kotlin in context of cloud as well. Yeah, definitely. We will definitely do that. So because our podcast is called Program in Love, right? I would love to start our discussion with a new relic report about serverless called For the Love of Serverless. Nice. It's a perfect name. Yes, it's a perfect name. So as you can see, they're talking about the rise in serverless, how invocation growth changed over the last half a year till January, and there is a huge spike. Which I guess the spike by the end of the year is actually related to something. Holiday shopping. To some specific event like Christmas, for instance. Yeah, it says holiday invocation spike. So probably starting with Black Friday and moving through yeah. Christmas or something. Indeed. But yeah, it shows that the uh, invocation growth is like 200% and, and even more. Actually, in the beginning of the report, they have like the highlights what's like the quick finds there and the cane findings that the serverless invocation count is on the rise. And here they actually say it's 206%, but in the graph they say 209% <laughs> must be a typo or, or yeah. yeah, something else. <laughs> Plus and, or minus and 3%. <laughs> the other part is actually the second point here is like... It seems to be mostly out. Lambda related. Yes. Yeah, it, it is. Yeah. Lambda seems to have be pretty synonymous with serverless for a lot of people. The concept of serverless has definitely been broadening beyond Lambda and function as a service. So we could talk a little bit about what serverless means, what it is. Yeah, like let's talk about that first. So my perspective on it is that serverless is really pretty much the platform as a service that we've had with Heroku and other services for a long time with a little shift, which is making it be totally usage-based billing. And I think that that's really the core differentiator of serverless versus platform as a service. Because like on Heroku, you pay for instance time. So if you are running an instance, whether or not it's getting traffic or fully utilized, you're paying for the full instance. And with serverless, the serverless world, I think the core idea of it is that you only pay for what you actually use. But there's a challenge to that because to only pay for what you use, the provider needs to be able to turn off resources when they're not being used so that their costs don't match the actual usage. And this means that in serverless platforms, that things get turned off when they're not handling requests. And so that's how Lambda works. That's how Google Cloud Functions works. But um, how do you know that they're not handling the requests anymore? I mean, at what point? So there's always a request life cycle. So there's going to be something that, that handles the request. So the request is going to come into the system that's the managed system. And then that system says, oh, do I have a instance that can handle this thing? And if it does, then it forwards the request out to that instance. And if it doesn't, then it starts up an instance holding that request open. And then as soon as the instance is started, then sends a request in. And so this is the core problem of cold starts is that if you have a request come in and you don't have resources to be able to handle that request, whether you don't have any or you don't have enough, that request needs to wait until an instance is available before it can be handled. And that's what is called a cold start and has been one of the primary kind of architectural challenges to serverless systems. 
Right, but when does the platform know when it can shut down the instance or whatever? Most of the serverless platforms that I know of will give you some buffer of time. Let's say all the requests are drained and there's no current requests. They'll keep the instance running for some amount of time before they decide to shut it down. And at least on Cloud Run, it's I don't think that that is configurable. But on Knative, which is serverless on top of Kubernetes, you can go in and turn that knob to increase that timeout. And then Lambda has its own way of managing that lifecycle of the actual underlying instances. Okay. That brings us to the infinite scalability, right? If we can spin up a Lambda while waiting for the request, that means that we can do that infinite times and without a headache of supporting servers and maintaining them. I guess it depends on the capacity of the cloud provider. Yeah, but we can... <laughs> There's always limits somewhere. <laughs> Make it somewhere, somebody else headache, right? Somebody else limits. Yeah, like number of database connections can be one particular bottleneck that could prevent your ability to scale beyond a certain point. But uh, there's different models for how the request handling actually correlates to instances. In the case of Lambda, I think that they will send multiple requests to a given instance. I don't know if they overlap them or not on Lambda. In Google Cloud Functions, an instance will only ever handle one concurrent request. And so that means that there will never be any overlapping requests on a given instance. On Cloud Run, you can set the number of concurrent request to a given instance. And I think the default is like 80 or something like that. And so um, so yeah, so there's a difference in how the actual requests map to instances, if it's one-to-one or one-to-many. In the, the case of, of Java applications and, and uh, Node applications that can use a NIO, Java NIO, or a, what's it called, a Node, where it's the non-blocking IO version that they use in Node. Those, if you have something that's non-blocking, it makes sense to be able to use that time when you're in a wait state to do other work. And so that's where it's nice to have concurrency on the actual instance, because in the case of Java, a lot of time you're just like waiting for some other service to respond or waiting for a database to respond or whatever. And if you can use that instance for other things, then that can be a really more efficient way to do things. Also, when you get concurrency on an instance, you can take advantage of things like connection pools. Whereas if you only ever have single concurrency on an instance, a connection pool really makes no sense at all. I mean, I guess maybe it would if you're fanning out from one request to a bunch of requests, then you may want a connection pool, that sort of thing. But in general, it doesn't make a lot of sense to use connection pools in a single concurrency model. So, so there's all sorts of trade-offs. I would lump it all under serverless and kind of just different ways to implement the actual request handle on infrastructure. At the end of the day, there is a server there. There's, there's an instance that's running something and handling requests, and there's different ways to map those things together. Right. But I've been talking to quite a few people lately about serverless and about how they adopt it, and everybody is saying that, oh, yeah, we are going to adopt it even more because it actually saves us resources, saves us, saves us money. And in many cases, they would implement the functions or the Lambda functions, however you call it, using Node.js or Python. But some of them, they would say like, no, 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 we still have to use Java for this. And in this report that we are looking at, we can see that Node.js and Python are, are way ahead of Java in the number of functions monitored. But there is another figure 
saying that the number of invocations is actually much higher for Java. There are comments on this saying that they are actually expecting the, the adoption of Java in serverless to grow. Okay, that's about Lambda, but I've recently seen a news article about Google Cloud actually adding support for Google Functions. So let's talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. And real quick, let's hop back to the usage, the language usage. Mm -hmm. I think that Node and Python have fit really well with the serverless model in part because they don't have any real startup overhead. And so you can avoid the cold start problem much easier usually with Node and Python than you can with Java. And so I think that was in part why Node and Python became more quickly adopted with some serverless platforms. I think also in general, I think Lambda has not been adopted very much by the enterprise. It's been more adopted by startups and startups today aren't usually picking Java. And so I think that there's some interesting reasons behind uh, why Node and Python are... Actually, uh, there is another report by Datadog, a similar report to this one, saying that more bigger companies are actually adopting serverless approach than the startups because they have more infrastructure and therefore they can save much more money on this. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I also read the article called The Rise of Serverless Computing from the Communication of the Us Magazine. And they're saying the same, that larger companies tend to adopt more cloud technologies and especially serverless technology than startups. Yeah, but that was somewhat surprising because I had the same impression as you, like, yeah, startups are going to use that much more because like, they would like to escape the infrastructure management overhead. But it seems that the cost benefit that the bigger companies are getting is way higher than I would expect. You also would think about legacy code in serverless, right? Because serverless applications designs is fundamentally different from what we have. Okay, uh, that's true. I, I will hardly put my weblogic uh, application. <laughs> into, uh, yeah, that's function. not going to work on serverless. People are adopting microservices architecture. So maybe that's what gives an opportunity to adopt serverless as well. Yeah. Yeah. And the larger the company is, the more technology products they use. <laughs> and so I think that's another way to explain this is that if you go to JP Morgan Chase, are you going to be able to find somebody that's using Lambda there? I'm sure you will. And that's just because of the size of the company. So it's, it is interesting that this graph kind of correlates a little bit to the size of the company means that they're going to use more products. And so, yeah, as a whole, they're going to be more likely to use Lambda. But how many enterprises are like, switching their entire enterprise architecture over to serverless, I think that that's pretty, pretty minimal. Yeah. I'm pretty sure they're still running COBOL somewhere in the back end. Exactly. So. Yeah, that's true. Exactly. And also I'm thinking about the major challenges that people are, that slow in adoption of the serverless. And maybe one of the thing is the lack of tools and frameworks. So how do you debug, for example, cloud-based infrastructure? You use cloud-based IDE, right? You use AWS X-Ray probably to detect causes of the problem. What does Google offer? I'm sorry, I'm not that much uh, familiar with that, but what solutions Google offers for debugging, tracing, and things like that? We probably should go like from the beginning, what Google Cloud is and what does it offer for serverless? 
yeah. and yeah. then we can let's, dive let's into sources. Let's well. do so. that. I'm jumping around. <laughs> All right, here's your here's your quick rundown on Google Cloud and serverless offerings. So, the way that I like to look at it is that you should try to use the highest level of abstraction possible. And so on Google Cloud, that would be Cloud Functions. And so that's a function as a service. You just deploy a function, and that can be all sorts of different technologies. And so deploy your function, you get that concurrency of one, usage-based billing, all that kind of stuff. If that approach doesn't work for you, then drop, because of some limitation, then drop down a layer of abstraction, which would be Google Cloud Run. And with Google Cloud Run, it uses... Uh, Docker containers as the concurrency or as the, the deployment artifact model, and then has multiple concurrency per request to a given instance. So the way that the billing works for that is still serverless-based billing. You only pay for what you use, but because it supports concurrent requests, if you have 50 requests all happening at the same time, you only pay for that instance time for one instance if your concurrency is set to 50 or higher in that case. And so when requests are overlapping, you only pay for basically that single used instance, not for, in the case of function as a service, you pay per invocation. So it's a different usage-based model. So then that's that's Cloud Run, fully managed, platform as a service, all the stuff that you need to run your application. But if there's some limitation in that, you can drop down to another layer of abstraction, which is called Cloud Run for Anthos. And Cloud Run for Anthos is based on the open source Knative project, which is a Kubernetes-based serverless platform. And so that provides all the serverless things, the ability to spin down stuff when it's not being used. But in this case, with Anthos, you're deploying it on Kubernetes. You can deploy it on GKE, which is Google's Kubernetes service, or you can deploy it onto Anthos GKE, which is can be an on-prem Kubernetes service. So that's in your own data center, prem, whatever. And so those are the, the range of serverless offerings. You could also just use Knative on Kubernetes as well. And so that can be on your own Kubernetes or on, on a managed Kubernetes service. So those are kind of the runtime stack. There also is App Engine, which has um, been around for a long time. It's, it's, I think, one of the original platform as a services. And so you can use App Engine. And I honestly don't know a whole lot about App Engine. I've done most with Kubernetes and with Cloud Run. And so that's the execution side of things. And then there's the monitoring side, there's databases and other backend cloud services and those sorts of things that you can add in as well. So to the question around monitoring, that's something called Stackdriver, provides monitoring, cloud logging, all the kind of DevOps side of things, the ops tools and all that. And then back to the question about how do you debug these things? This is something that I actually like about the approach with this kind of tiered approach that Google has where you can peel back a layer of abstraction is that if you start at the highest level of abstraction, which is Google Cloud Functions, they're based on open source frameworks called function frameworks. So we just announced the function framework for Java. 
There's also function frameworks for Go and Python and I think some Node as well and others. And so these are open source frameworks that will allow you to kind of simulate the function, what the function as a service is doing for you. Because with a function as a service, you're just deploying the function, but at some point that needs to turn into a runnable thing. And the function framework is the thing that turns it into that runnable thing and gives you the endpoint handling so that it can handle a request, deserialize the payload, give it to your function, and then you return the object, and then it will serialize it and return it in the re response. So that's open source. So what that means is that when you're using function frameworks, you can run these locally just like you would in any other application, and they're portable. So you can write a function as a service with the function framework, and you can run it on Cloud Run. You can run it on Cloud Run for Anthos. You can run it straight on, on Kubernetes. So it is a fully portable way to write a function as a service, which is nice. So it just provides that way to peel back those layers of abstraction without having to go to a different universe. And one of the architectural challenges that I see with some function as a service platforms is that once you hit the limits of what you can do with that and you need to be able to peel back the layers of abstraction, you're stuck. You need to re-architect some things in order to make that kind of change. But with function frameworks, starting with that, you can always peel back those layers down to raw Docker containers. I see. We internally had a, a discussion with the team. When you are developing some serverless application, most of the cloud providers provide some sort of SDK, like SDK for Java, SDK for something else. Google does it, Amazon does it, and so on. But in which case would I still use some sort of a framework, like a web framework, like Quarkus, Micronaut, Spring? All yeah. of them are actually developing something for cloud. And in the announcement, actually, you can see that there is like support for Spring Cloud Functions and Micronaut. Yeah, so in the case of Google Cloud Functions and Cloud Run, you can use the functions framework to create that wrapper around your function so that it can run. But you can also use Spring Cloud Functions or Micronaut or other frameworks as well and not use that. And you would still get that same portability down the stack as you need to with those. And so certainly great options as well. And, and I've used both uh, Spring Cloud Functions and Micronaut and had great experiences with them. So yeah, so in the, in the Java world, there definitely is more options for how you turn a function into a thing that can handle requests in a function as a service, but then can also be just a raw application that you could run on Cloud Run or on Kubernetes, Knative, whatever, because if you can package it into a container, then you can run it wherever you can run containers. So basically, portability is the answer because you never know how your application will be deployed actually in a month or in a year, so you wouldn't have to re-architect it. Yeah, and sometimes what happens is requirements will conflict with the supported features of a given cloud service. And so just as an example, I built an application recently where I needed to do server sent events from my application out to the browser. And uh, on Cloud Run today, it's an alpha feature to use server sent events, but my application really needed to be able to do push. And so I was able to take that application that I had initially tried to do on Cloud Run fully managed. And because I ran into that limitation, I took the exact same application and 
and ran it on Cloud Run for Anthos and didn't have to make any changes to my code. And so that was really nice when I ran into that network limitation to be able to drop down a layer of abstraction without having to re-architect everything. And so I could have started with the, at the function level and kind of walked through that same process. But with Cloud Run, most of my applications I just do on Cloud Run to take advantage of the concurrency of Cloud Run. So I haven't done a whole lot with the Google Cloud Functions and Function Framework stuff, but I have done a little bit. Right. But back to this cold start problem that we have with Java mostly, right? Yeah. So a lot of people actually escape Java or try to adopt Node.js and Python and mostly implement some small functions. At least they think so that in the beginning, the functionality will not grow and they will get away with dynamic typing. <laughs> and then you still launched Java support and Google functions. Yeah. Did I say it right? It's not Google yeah. functions. Uh, Google, Google Cloud, cloud functions. functions, right? Yeah. Why? Why would people use Java? <laughs> and we discussed that a little bit on my Scala Love podcast with, in episode with James about what is the cold start in general and why people are so afraid of this. And is it true <laughs> that it's only characteristic or property of GDM based language or is that problem in general for several less? And the conclusion we came into is that nobody should be afraid of having Java on cloud functions. And I will let James to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so usually functions are, are smaller. So usually the startup time isn't as bad, but there's multiple pieces to the cold start problem. We'll talk mostly about Java applications here, but first you need to download the application to an instance. So that's the first thing that needs to happen to actually run the thing. And then you need to start the thing up. And then once the thing is started up, it may need to hydrate some local caches. It may need to do some startup task. And so all of those things can accumulate so that the user can just be sitting there waiting for this thing to start. So that would be a cold start. And there's different techniques to address most of those pieces, but maybe not all of them. It's interesting. I've had debates on Twitter over some people claim that the cold start problem is solved because in some cases you may not get a cold start, which is like, okay, if you keep your node application under like eight megs or something like that, there's some weird, weird like magic number. And if you don't need to do any hydration of local caches or anything like that, and your container size is, let's say, like under 50 megs or something, then you can reduce that cold start time down to an acceptable range of, let's say, 500 milliseconds or something for a cold start. So there are some cases where you're not going to run into cold start. It's not a problem for everyone everywhere. But in the JVM in particular, there is, uh, if you're starting, let's say, a spring application, the minimum time to pull down a container, which is larger because it's the whole JVM. So that's like 100 megs just for, I think it's about 150 megs for a base OS image and the JVM. And then you have your, your all your jar files that need to also be loaded into memory out of that container. And then the JVM needs to actually start up the Spring application. And then I think it usually does runtime reflection to do the auto wiring dependency injection of that thing. And so you're up to like, let's say three seconds or something like that. And that's not even including if you need to rehydrate some local cache or something like that. So if your user just like, let's say, sent a message in a chat client and it takes, 
like three seconds just for the infrastructure to be ready to handle that request. Like that's obviously not a good user experience for something that the user expects to be instantaneous. And so there are a few ways to address some of the cold start problem. Graal VM is the most common way starting to be used in the Java ecosystem, which will ahead of time compile a Java application, Java, Kotlin, Scala, whatever, down into a native executable. And I've done some playing with Graal VM, and I just did a blog post a couple of weeks ago about my experiments on jamesward.com. You can go read it. But it goes through the different ways to create different tips for using Graal VM and all sorts of stuff. But I think that my my minimum container size, so the full container size with a Graal VM, JVM based application was like 18 megs or something like that. So pretty minimal time to download the container. And then because it's Graal VM, the startup time for these Graal VM ahead of time compiled applications are usually in the tens to 100 millisecond range. So super fast startup time. So you can get most of the cold start problem down to a manageable size with Graal VM. But you make a whole lot of other trade-offs when you're using Graal VM. There's some challenges there. You don't just get all that for free. So, And there's some very experimental GraalVM support for Spring. Micronaut has great GraalVM support. Quarkus has great GraalVM support already. So, so there's a, a lot kind of happening in this space right now. But really to try to reduce the startup time, reduce the memory consumption for really ultimately so that I think these things can better match the elasticity of demand on the application, which is what serverless is trying to move us towards. And here in Datadog report, we can see the duration of Lambda function is like eight milliseconds and the distribution of function durations is so that one-fifth of Lambda functions run for 100 milliseconds or less, which is not possible without GraalVM, I guess. And that I, sort of I explains... I have a gut feeling that the longer the Lambda runs, the more incentive the developers have to actually use Java because then it's more performant. Yeah. Well, that's one of the weird things that we trade off with these disposable servers that are always being recycled is that the JVM was in part built around this idea of optimization that happens over time in the JIT, right? The JIT is just making the thing run faster and faster and faster over time. And in a function as a service world or in a serverless world, we're tearing down these instances all the time. So we don't get the advantages of the JIT being able to warm up. So if we're not going to get the advantages of a JIT being able to warm up, then GraalVM makes a whole lot of sense. It's like, let's just ahead of time compile it. And uh, yeah, so I think that's one way to think about cold starts and how to deal with them. I think it's not only about JIT, it's also about the concurrency, because JVM actually gives the concurrency. Yeah, for sure. And that's another place where a lot of function as a service that only has a single request being handled by an instance is that you lose the efficiency of connection pools. Like it's really nice to be able to start up a database connection pool so that your latency when you make a database request doesn't have to go through the whole protocol setup and all the overhead of making a connection, which can be hundreds of milliseconds sometimes. And so it's interesting that I think in the the Lambda world, I think a lot of people are using, there's some Amazon database service. I'm not a real expert on Amazon services, but there's some Amazon database service that has been like super highly tuned for super fast connection time because in the Lambda world, you can't rely on a connection pool alleviating that 
connection overhead time for you. And so what they've done is just optimize the connection for that particular database. And so, but if you're talking to Postgres and you don't have a connection pool, you're taking a huge hit that the JVM and concurrency gives you on, so you're right, it's not just about a warm JIT. Also, there are also other places that having something running that can handle multiple requests has a huge efficiency boost to it. And another argument for using the JVM that I've heard is that, okay, if you need to like write some small function and put some JSON into some data store or take some JSON from data store and send it back to the user, then probably Java doesn't matter. But as soon as you have to talk to Kafka, like send a message there, send a message here, make a request to the database, uh, I don't know, make some kind of a transformation, send the result back to some other queue. Then you need some sort of not only the SDK, but also the drivers, the libraries to kind of work with all that. In Java ecosystem, we have all that. Like you just take it from yep. the shelf and work yep. with it. Yeah. Yeah, there is this movement to architect systems as a bunch of functions and chaining functions together. But there's a whole lot of waste in the serialization side of that. And then just like a lot of times in a sequential process, you need some external state as you move through the process. And maybe you want to mutate that state as you walk through these different steps. And so this in the serverless function as a service world can get really tricky where it's like, what am I going to do? Like go to out to this database to like get that state on every single step through my function. Like that's not efficient. And so there's been this movement towards stateful serverless, which brings the model of this state in a series of functions into the programming model, into a serverless compatible programming model. And so Microsoft has a stateful serverless product that I don't know much about. Lightbend has an open source one that's built on top of Akka, which is called Cloud State. And then the Flink folks also have another stateful serverless. So there was this ideal when serverless started like, oh, like serverless and everything should be stateless. But then in a lot of real applications, it's really painful and really wasteful and really inefficient to not have state as you walk through a series of sequential things. And so that's something that people are beginning to tackle in the serverless world. But yeah, there's a lot of, I think, architectural challenges to the typical functions of service model that is kind of very constrained in what it's able to do and how it's able to leverage the underlying infrastructure. And so we're starting to see some kind of breakouts from that very constrained model to other things like stateful serverless is one, one example. So talking about the architecture of a function as a service, for me, is a functional programming. It's something where I feel really comfortable because all functions should be pure. They should be immutable and things like that. And in order to produce the state, you need to compose them where like it's even called state. And I know about like state monad and that makes me really comfortable. But I do understand that probably it is not the most popular programming paradigm in languages like Node.js or Python. So that's where people probably face the problem with uh, like how they think about that. And especially like, how do I work with the state when I like need to change that? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I think a lot of us, especially in the, the scholar world, have been writing functions as endpoints 
and writing functions as a referentially transparent thing. We've been doing that with a lot of a lot of different Scala frameworks for a long time. Yes. I think the difference is that in function as a service, your deployment unit is just a single function. And for most of what I build, that is too constrained. And so the primary reason why I don't use Google Cloud Functions or any function as a service stuff very much is that I don't want to be constrained to having my deployment unit be a single function. So that's where I like Cloud Run because I can deploy an application with multiple functions as endpoints and have that thing all deployed through a single container and have concurrency across that and be able to leverage connection pools and all sorts of other things that you can't really do well in the function as a service model. But essentially the programming model that we've been using, a lot of us in the Scala world, is essentially the function as a service model where I have a function that is going to handle request or return a response. And it's just that being forced into that deployment model of you can only deploy this one function and this instance can only run that one function for me is too limiting for the stuff that I've built. Well, one of the things that I like about pure functions and just normal programming is that it's much easier to test. And uh, talking of that, when we develop something for the cloud, there is always a question, how do you test this thing? Because it often depends on some sort of a, running service and what i liked about the announcement in like in the google's blog was that you can actually just run like locally yep is that true yeah i mean it is really at the end of the day these functions via the function frameworks are really just applications that you run you can run locally there is no special sauce to this there is no like a proprietary SDK that you have to use. It is just an application that that has a single endpoint that is handled by a single function. And so yeah, testing these Google Cloud functions, running them locally is all should be super easy. I've done it with a number of different language with the, the open source function frameworks. And I think it's nice to be able to do that. For me, I choose to use a less constrained model where I'm still essentially getting a lot of these benefits, but I'm not constrained to a single function. And that's, for me, that's a lot better development model. So I still have the portability. I still have the ease of deployment, the serverless, all that kind of stuff with Cloud Run, but I'm not constrained to having this thing only be a single function. But I definitely do like the function frameworks and Google Cloud Functions support that local development mode. So yeah, there isn't the lock in there. There was another comment that you made about the services that you depend on. And this is where I want to put in a plug for test containers. Test containers are awesome. Test containers provide a way to run backing services, like if you need Postgres or you need Memcache or you need Kafka, whatever. Test containers will allow you to run your application or your tests, and it will start up the necessary backing services for you in Docker containers and hand the connection information to your application or your tests so that you can then talk to those disposable services. So the way that I'm working now is I do my local development. I'm running my application that I'm working on on my machine, not in a container, just raw on my machine. But then the backing services that it depends on are running through test containers. And you put Bigtable into test containers? 
Yeah, see, that's, yeah, good question. No, <laughs> I wish. <laughs> there are emulators for some Google Cloud services, but not for... Uh, I, I actually remember Red Hat was working on some sort of a project that was resembling the Google APIs. It was a joint project with Google. I don't know if it was, huh. was it discontinued or... Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Did it, did it actually uh, fly or not? Most of what I build, I build on top of things that are open source and that I can either use as a managed service or use in a test container. And so I've used Kafka recently a lot, and it's really nice to be able to use my backing Kafka service in a test container. And I could run it on my own Kubernetes if I want, or I can use Confluent Cloud if I want to have a fully managed experience. So having that portability across those has been awesome, but obviously not every cloud service has that portability. And really, this is, also relates to serverless because Confluent Cloud has a serverless offering for Kafka, which is awesome. So that means that I can go all the way from a test container running this thing on my machine so that I can do my local dev to running this thing on my own Kubernetes to running on their managed service that is serverless and only pay for what you use. And I love that ability. I don't know that there is really much else out there in terms of data storage systems that you can do that whole spectrum on from serverless all the way down to a test container and everything in between, as well as, as Confluent has done with Kafka. So I hope that more services go that direction. Right. What I see there is that it works, this approach works until you don't need any specific service by Google. As soon as you need one, you need some sort of a mock or something that resembles this service. So for instance, if I'm developing for AWS, there is a local stack, which is not maintained by Amazon. It's actually developed by Atlassians, if I'm correct. And that actually allows you developing for the services that are running in the cloud, but locally. Yeah. And this is like the thing that you really need when you develop for, for yeah. the cloud. Yeah, that's where I love open source and love that these things that are actually portable, that the thing itself is actually portable, like Kafka is, because I think that a lot of times emulators can get you so far, but at some point the emulator is going to not work like the real thing. And we've lived through this where we thought that our code would be portable across different databases at one point. And then we realized that it's true to a point, but any given level of complexity that falls apart. And so it's better just to be able to, like, I remember we used to use hypersonic SQL, right? It was like that in-memory database system. We would use it, but then run, run our production stuff on Oracle. And you would always run into some weird thing that didn't work the same across those systems because query languages, man, they query languages, they get really difficult to emulate with 100% accuracy. And so I, I remember those times, yes. Yeah. Wouldn't it be nice if instead of doing things that way, we could just run Oracle in a test container? And I don't know if there is an Oracle test container or not. There is. Not. There, there is. is. Yes. Awesome. So that's the preferred approach is like just emulate that production environment as close as you can. And certainly with things that are cloud only services, that's really hard and that's unfortunate. That's true. All right. Do we have any more links actually, Oli? Do you remember? No, I don't think so. I just opened the... We have one question though. I came up with this one today. So 
Firebase? How does it relate somehow <laughs> to Google Cloud Platform? That's a good question. I've used Firebase a little bit, and they've done some unification of like a billing accounts and project, which is like the folder that your resources live in in Google Cloud. They've done some work to integrate those two. I just used, started using Firebase hosting. JamesWard.com now runs on Firebase hosting. And that was because it was just a really easy way to get my static site up and running. And I had to go into the Firebase console, which is different than the GCP console, but there was kind of the unified project structure and some of that. So I think that they are two different kind of cloud platforms in a way, but there is some base level unification around identity and projects and billing and some of those things. So Firebase seems to be a lot more popular with the Android crew from what I can tell. But as we start to do more Kotlin cloud stuff, I'm seeing more Android backends running on Cloud Run with Kotlin, which has been awesome using Ktor or Micronaut or Spring Boot, things like that with Kotlin. So that's been really cool to see. So in terms of your question, like GCP, how does it relate to Firebase? I would say kind of two different product suites with, I think, some overlap, but then also some foundational pieces that are shared is the way that I understand it. Right. You mentioned Kotlin. I just seen the announcement on some other blog post related to this stuff is that Kotlin extensions for Firebase were released just recently. Nice. And uh, that's good that's news cool. for, I guess, for Android developers who are actually using Kotlin for most of the applications and need to develop some sort of a backend. Yep. It will be like a seamless transition. Yeah. It does seem like the Firebase stuff has done a really great job at creating a really nice developer experience for Android folks and and I think and pieces for Kotlin developers. So I think there's a lot of really nice stuff there in Firebase. I just haven't used a whole lot of it. Again, if we mentioned Kotlin, we cannot get around it because I'm in the Kotlin team. What do you think about Kotlin? Like you have been playing recently. You mentioned your favorite is Scala, but what do you think Yay. about Kotlin in terms of... <laughs> application development, especially for the cloud? Yeah, I think that it's a great option for Java developers. I think that for Java developers who are moving into the cloud generation, who are making changes with how they're building applications, Kotlin is, is a great leap forward while still preserving the foundation that they have built on. And so I think for Java developers making forward movement, Kotlin is a great place to go. And we're seeing a lot of Java developers make that jump. There's a lot of good stuff that people coming from Java are discovering and beginning to learn, like immutability. Like immutability in Kotlin is, I would say it's not awesome, but it's a whole lot better than it is in the Java world. It's a whole lot easier to do immutable stuff in Kotlin than it is in Java. And so to have Java developers come to Kotlin and start using immutability, that just makes me so happy because, God, I spent a whole day this week just dealing with the complexities of trying to unravel this giant mutable mess of things. And every time I touch mutable stuff, I am so thankful that most of my life now is spent in immutable stuff because it's just so much easier to unravel, so much easier to grok and understand and debug through. And so that is one example of a place where Java developers are moving forward in a really good direction with Kotlin. Coroutines are good, although they're not functional, which I think they're an improvement over what we have in the world of Java, but it's not Scala Zio. It's not 
yeah, you can do things like Arrow and Kotlin. Most people are not doing that yet. And so, but it is a step in, in a good direction. Air handling in Kotlin, it's still too exception oriented for me, which I think is good because Java developers can more easily move to it. But for me, I don't ever want to see another exception again, ever. Exceptions are dead to me. And if What can, about nullability? No, oh, nullability. Another great example where Kotlin is helping Java developers move forward into nullability in the type system. It's a great thing, although I hate the Elvis operator. The Elvis operator is horrible because it's not monadic. And now I just sound like a functional programming. <laughs> yes, me too. Um, <laughs> but, okay, so here's a practical example. I've got two knowable things and they're related. So I need to be able to, if both of them are set, be able to produce a new value, right? And in the world of the Elvis operator, this is like impossible. Like you, you just can't do this with the Elvis operator. And in the world of monads, it's just a flat map. You just flat map it and it's wonderful. So it's a good example where Kotlin is helping a lot of people move forward into better programming practices, but it's not the ideal that I live in yeah. or would like to live in. I think just was it yesterday or a couple of days ago, Roman published another blog post about exceptions an exception handling in Kotlin. He was explaining yeah. exactly that Kotlin actually takes a little bit different approach. It is somewhat similar to Java, but it's different from Java. And it's similar in a way that it has to work with Java. And therefore, there are exceptions, but exceptions don't scale. And the way checked exceptions work, just not applicable to Kotlin very yeah. much. Yeah, it definitely is hard for things that want to interoperate with Java with how do you deal with exceptions that happen out of your control? And in my ideal exceptionless world, there's not really a good way to handle wrapping something that throws exceptions. So there's some challenges there for sure. If interoperability is one of your goals, which it certainly is for Kotlin yeah. and Scala. So, but maybe there is a future without exceptions as we continue taking steps forward. One little detail, when you say exceptionless, you mean that you don't throw them, but you still use them to show take the functional uh, approach. Yeah. If I can, I don't use exceptions. What uh, do you do? ADTs for yeah, ADT, errors? ADTs mm -hmm. for errors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I don't love the the hierarchicalness of exceptions. Yes, that's what I wanted to say. When I first was introduced to checked exceptions in Java, I was so happy. I was like, oh my God, this is a whole new Actually, world. Actually, for now the beginners, it's... Everything, what it throws, this is fantastic. But yeah. then I realized that there is a hierarchy of exceptions and uh, everything is not that ideal. And actually, it would be better without them, especially if I'm writing some Lambda functions and I want to throw exception out of that and they do not support checked exceptions because, and I need to rob it into runtime exception or do something else or whatever. And that creates a lot of boilerplate. What I wanted to say is that for the beginners, checked exceptions are, you know, perfect you well, know how, you, you know what to do you know that it will throw an <laughs> yeah, exception yeah, that's what's exactly was my logic when i first so, was introduced to but by functor io which uh ollie can explain <laughs> has some real similarities to checked exceptions 
Yeah. So by saying this by factor IO, it's you probably will fear away a few listeners. Yeah. Let's keep, let's, that, keep yeah, let's keep let's, that. Let's keep that. Let's think about e- either. Right. It has two <laughs> holes for the you. Types. Just scared away another half. <laughs> <laughs> no, either is a simple example. I think so. It has two halves, left and right, and left is usually used to represent some kind of exception, and right, some kind of response from that function result of the function. And by functor IO is similar idea that. When you looked at the signature of the function, you can say exactly that it can fail with the, this kind of exception, which is on the left, or if it's nothing, or I don't know what's similar thing in Java. Success. Yeah. No, yeah. not nothing. Is there nothing in Java? Void, but Void. it's not a type. Yeah, it's not a type. Yeah. Yeah, but actually, in your signature of your function, you can explain how it can fail, or if it succeeds how it succeeds with which result. And that's similar to checked exceptions, except it's, it's expressed. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And checked exceptions, it's it's different than the type system. It's outside the type system. But in Bifunctor IO, it's saying that we're going to express that same information, but do it through the type system. And if you're using either, then it's a monad. Or if you're using IO, then it's a monad. This podcast is becoming functional. <laughs> functional, <laughs> functional cloud podcast. Right. Actually, you mentioned only syntactical or language capabilities of Kotlin, right? What is exciting to me here, specifically related to cloud, is the platform capabilities of Kotlin, is that it actually is a multi-platform language now, targeting not only JVM, but also Node.js and uh native runtimes, and in the context of cloud, when we are talking about cold starts, right? If people actually care about cold starts, they can target Node.js with Kotlin and run their function on Node.js runtime. And I I I hope one day we'll be able to run native Kotlin as well. Yeah. I mean, you you could certainly do Kotlin native in a Docker container and run it on Cloudrun today like that. That is fine. Uh, for me, I think that GraalVM is more of the direction that most people will go because for this use case, for the cloud kind of cold start use case, the reason for that is that when you do Kotlin native or you do Scala native, you lose all of the ecosystem of the JVM. Like, and you use, I think you, in the case of Scala native, I'm not sure about Kotlin native, you lose the collection libraries, which like that's a huge bummer to lose like, like your collection libraries. And so what you lose in those native things is a lot. Whereas GraalVM is awesome because you don't lose any of that. Yeah, you can't do reflection or you have to at least specify. Your there, there is always a trade-off. That's right. I think that most people are going to end up going more in the direction of, of GraalVM for this particular use case because the, then you don't lose as much. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, so the multi-platform capability to me is like one interesting feature related to the language. So an example of that is like there's, I think it's Cloudflare functions. They have to be JavaScript, like have to run on Node or something like that. And they run on the edge machines. So they run at the edge of the CDN, which is really a cool idea to be able to like run an application at the edge. Usually we've just served static content from the edge, but to be able to run an application at the edge, super cool. And it's serverless and 
Awesome. Okay. But I think I may get some of these facts wrong, but I think that Cloudflare, one of these platforms that you could only run stuff that ran on Node. So I think to your point, it is cool to be able to write a Kotlin program, compile it into JavaScript and run it on the edge with with these these edge function as a service platforms essentially rust has the same capability which is something really cool about rust is being able to use wasm to create your compile your project down into javascript and then run it in a place that only runs javascript yeah indeed wasm is like a visionary thing right actually will solve many problems for all the languages yeah i hope one day (laughs) that's right I used Kotlin JS recently. It was awesome. I wrote Kotlin and it was a browser app and that was super cool. Okay. To me, it's still experimental, but... I haven't used Scala JS, but... If you say so. It was a very small application. Okay. <laughs> that was for uh, Chet and I's talk at KotlinConf last year. So yeah, I do think that Kotlin does have... Kotlin's ability to target multiple runtimes is, is pretty awesome. In terms of other capabilities for Kotlin that are specifically related to the cloud. I think like the coroutines and non-blocking stuff is actually awesome. Like it's great. Like being in the cloud and being in a microservices architecture, you likely are going to be doing a lot of async stuff on a call, on a request. And Kotlin's are definitely an improvement for the programming model handling that. So I would say that that's another place where where Kotlin has an advantage for cloud-oriented stuff. But yeah, I mean, I'm a fan of, I've read a lot of different, build stuff with a lot of different languages. And for me, if I can put it into a container, then I can run it on Cloud Run or I can <laughs> run it on Kubernetes. And so... All you uh, need is nice a container. To, all you need is a container. Just, yep. And if you're using GraalVM, so GraalVM has this way to take your application and compile it down into a native image. And then it has this capability to not just make it a a native executable, but also bundle into it all of the native bindings that it needs. And so that's where you can get your container size down to like the 18 megs or whatever that's in my blog post. That was a Scala Zio application that I think was 18 megs. And that's everything that's needed in the container. So I went from like 180 megs with OS, JVM, and all my jar files down to like 18 megs. So that's pretty cool. Then you lose a bunch of stuff too. Like you can't do Java agents in GraalVM, I don't think so. You mentioned GraalVM so many times. I feel like we have to invite someone from GraalVM team to talk about the GraalVM. Yeah, get Oleg on. He's awesome. Yes. We will do that, yes. Yeah, definitely. So for today, I think... We discussed pretty much what we wanted to. So if you want to say your last message to our listeners, please do, James. (laughs) I love functional programming. Um, (laughs) Move in that direction is my advice. Immutability, referential transparency, bifunctor IO. (laughs) And cloud. Monads. And do it and then run it all in the cloud. That's right. Perfect. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Super fun to chat with y'all.